Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, Biogen and its partner said they had decided to halt a late-stage study of an experimental Alzheimer's disease drug, marking another setback for drug makers' efforts to find a therapy for the degenerative ailment. That knocked the stock of Biogen down nearly 30% so far today. Uh, to help us dig deeper into this story, we welcome Max Neeson. Max is the biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist from Bloomberg Opinion. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios here in New York. So, Mac, Max, this is a, a huge deal for the company. Stock down 30%. What happened? So, this was one of the last really big late-stage Alzheimer's studies that focused on a particular way of, of potentially treating the disease, uh, focusing on on the creation of amyloid beta plaques. But, um, you know, there have been a number of previous failures, really prominent ones of, of very expensive uh, late-stage trials, most recently Eli Lilly, and then uh, Roche gave up on a similar medicine. So it's something that you could have seen coming, but, you know, Biogen has always pointed to data and some differences in its medicine and the way it's, it ran its trials that, that had people hoping that, that this might finally be the one to break through. But uh, it's becoming more difficult to avoid the conclusion that this approach is, is pretty fundamentally flawed in some way. Yeah, Max, uh, to your credit, you wrote a column to this effect uh, almost a year ago, basically saying this is there's not really any evidence that this is going to work. In fact, it sort of points to the opposite. And I'm just wondering, uh, given given that, I mean, yes, you are prescient and your your insights are, are very well taken, but it's just curious that it would remove one third of the market value of the company on these results coming out. How does that how does that square with reality? And, and what does that say about valuations currently? So I, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that, you know, if someone actually succeeded, uh, it would be, you know, an instant blockbuster, uh, an incredible scientific breakthrough. You know, the the consensus sales for this medicine, which are supposedly risk adjusted for, for 2026, $10 billion a year. You know, and then if it actually succeeded and had a, a clinically significant impact on Alzheimer's, that, that estimate might be low. So it's that kind of tantalizing upside uh, that had some people still invested, even if the likelihood of success was demonstrably uh, pretty low. And there's also the fact that this has been kind of a huge focus of Biogen, not just this, this big late-stage trial, but a number of other medicines uh, focusing either on this approach to Alzheimer's or Alzheimer's in general. So this kind of diminishes confidence in those further programs and just in, you know, the ability to, to tackle this disease anytime soon or with existing approaches in general. So you kind of had to write off not just aducanumab, this medicine, but other programs as well. And then also Biogen's strategy in general has been to focus on these kind of uh, riskier neurological conditions, you know, and it's great from a kind of a human and scientific perspective that you're, you're that they're doing that. You need someone to, otherwise we're, we're not going to make progress. But from an investment perspective, uh, it's it's pretty scary, especially when their current big money maker, multiple sclerosis medicines, is starting to kind of level out and decline. So that strategy looks even uh, more risky right now than it did a day ago. So, but you, if you if you talk about a market that is maybe ten billion dollars a year, I mean that's monstrous. These companies cannot walk away from this, right? I mean, even Biogen, who's just got whacked today in the stock market, they can't really walk away, can they? 
Uh, I, I think they should consider walking away from related approaches. Um, and one of their biggest uh, phase three Alzheimer's medicines is, is you know, another amyloid beta-focused program. And then the other kind of big area that people focus on is on the tau protein. That also has a pretty bad track record. So you really need to kind of look, take a, take a really hard look at those programs and think about whether there's a compelling reason to keep investing in them. Or is it time to move on to approaches that, you know, are less validated and even riskier in much earlier stage, but that take a significant step away from from a hypothesis that is kind of repeatedly proven to, to have fallen short. Max, I want to zoom out a little bit because this whole situation really raises a very important question about development of new drugs uh, and about the expense and the risk of them, but the necessity for the public good uh, and sort of where development should happen, right? I mean, there is some development at universities, but I mean, can you give us a sense of companies, of their approach, of how much money they'll invest in R&D, uh, whether there is sort of a reliance on, uh, you know, universities, how how that works, and they determine sort of what what's worth the investment. Sure, I mean there there's a lot of spending on on R and D, both directly in terms of internal discovery and development pipelines, and then externally in the form of of acquisitions, licensing deals with with little biotechs or or universities. Uh, many of those little biotechs are spun out of universities. And and how to go about doing that is, is an incredibly difficult question, one that I think pharma has a lot of a big way, a long ways to go in, in grappling with because more of their spending is increasingly directed at, at smaller populations. Yes, this so is what I was So cancer thinking. and rare disease, because you have, you have pricing power there and the trials are smaller and cheaper. Alzheimer's trials are giant, expensive, and they fail all the time. Okay. <laughs> win on all three fronts. Um, but, uh, you know, this really raises a question, I mean, especially when you talk about, say, vaccines that aren't very sexy and that are money losers. Or antibiotics, often, but too. Yeah. Antibiotics, you know, things that actually everyone uses all the time and that are crucial life-saving uh, uh, drugs. It just raises a question, you know, what is the correct model for this with respect to either government intervention um, or sponsorship or uh, rewarding or, you know, how do you how do you incentivize these companies to do that? I, I do think there needs to be uh, a kind of grand rethinking of of how, what medicines we pay for and why and how much we pay for them. If we continue to kind of leave the system at the status quo where we pay a lot for these medicines that uh, treat a very small population, often not that effectively, and uh, have antibiotics that are not fundamentally not profitable to develop. So there needs to be some kind of incentive, whether it's, you know, the government making specific, you know, specifically funding that research, uh, some way to bring the prices up. There, there does need to be some kind of intervention. Otherwise, we're going to continue uh, further down this path that we, that our current market heavily incentivizes. So uh, that's, let's just go back to Alzheimer's. Is, is anybody doing it right? Is anybody making headway? Um, not... No, not not no. yet. Yeah, you know there there are companies that are taking alternative not approaches. That take a, a, a that are, personal doing, interest in this, but yeah, that that kind of basic research. But there, there's nothing uh, right now that's kind of in a, a big potentially, you know, the sort of trial that could get a medicine approved that that is of a kind of dramatically different approach than things that we've seen that have failed in the past. So there's a lot of work yet to be done, and a lot of that's going to end up having to be. I think in in small biotechs and and at universities, um, where there's a little bit more more tolerance for failure, 
so we'll see what happens. I, I continue to be hopeful, uh, but we're, we're a long way off still. Max Neeson, thank you so much for being with us. Max Neeson is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers the biotech and all things health topics. I got to say, his column back in July of last year, he said, this isn't the home run some investors were looking for with respect to Alzheimer's treatments that Biogen was trying to develop. Federal Reserve sent a very clear message to markets yesterday. They were not playing to hike rates this year uh, or possibly again in this credit cycle, signaling a very dovish turn. The question is, do they have some sort of insight into the U.S. economy that the rest of the market doesn't? And are they seeing something uh, that is weaker than what we have been talking about and seeing. Joining us now in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, Gad Levinon, Chief Economist for North America at the Conference Board. Uh, the leading economic indicator index came out today with an update that was better than expected, showing an actual increase in February to 0.2%, uh, or increasing to 0.2%. I'm just wondering, is this indicating that the Fed is is responding to something else other than weakness in the economy? I think so. I don't think the Fed knows more than the rest of us about the economy and about the future of the economy. I think the weakness in the economy that we are seeing right now is not a surprise. I think it's a reaction to a very traumatic December, in, in the, especially in retail sales and some of the decline in industrial production and new orders that we are seeing since then is a result of that decline. But the fundamentals of the economy, I think, are not very different than they were three, four months ago. And I think they're surprisingly dovish. Yeah, it's interesting. The, uh, again, the data that came out from the leading economic indicator today from the conference board, better than expected, showing some strength. Um, so what do you think the Fed is looking at to effectively double down on their dovishness, if you will, uh, yesterday. What, do, what, what are they seeing that maybe we're not? Yeah, I, I just think they made a decision when they saw that uh, in December that uh, they are going to be blamed for a recession if it was to come. And they don't, uh, they are scared and they don't want this responsibility. I think they, because of that, they made the shift and they're using the economic outlook is almost as an excuse to, uh, um, justify their their shift, uh, but I, I don't think there is indeed a reason to be very dovish uh, or very pessimistic about the future outlook. Do you think they made a mistake? Um, I think it really depends on your ideology and uh, other things. Uh, I, I think. What that, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that there is certainly more likelihood of uh, increase in inflation than I think the Fed uh, leads us to believe right now. I think if we close our eyes and uh, use our imagination and use the forecast of most economists, what we'll get is a, an economy that is growing by two to two and a half percent in the next six months or so, labor market tightening further, wages accelerating further. And in that scenario, I think uh, having um, a higher inflation is a very likely outcome. Is that bad? I mean, higher wages, isn't that a good thing? Oh, that's a good thing. So again, it depends what your goals are. If um, 
if your main goal is to control inflation and make sure that it doesn't go above a, a, what your comfort zone, then I think um, this is a mistake. If you are willing to in- let inflation go higher or risk that inflation go higher, but uh, have uh, more people join the labor market and having higher wages, then I think that's a very legitimate decision. So to what extent do you think uh, the Fed and Chairman Powell are being influenced by some of the geopolitical issues uh, in the world, uh, China slowing down, uh, trade issues with China, European Union, uh, certainly the economic weakness there and Brexit just adding on to it. How much do you think they took those issues into account in, in kind of surprising the market with their tone yesterday? Yeah, I think uh, it, it's um, a factor that affects the outlook, definitely. Uh, but uh, it's not uh, something that uh, is new. The, the weakening in China and Europe has been going on for several months. Uh, I think, if anything, in terms of the fundamentals, there are good news in recent months. The end of the shutdown, the increase in stock prices, the improvement uh, or the smaller chances of a trade war with China. I think all of those are good things. Uh, and I think that will be um, reflected in the outlook going forward. I'm, I'm still going back to inflation, the idea yeah. that inflation could pick up more than people expect later this year. Oh. What's going to be driving that? Why is this time different, uh, this late in the cycle, since we haven't seen a real acceleration in inflation until now? Right. I, I think uh, it, we didn't have uh, as fast of a wage growth as we have um, right now. I think the... Uh, in 2018, it's the first time that we actually saw a, a visible increase in wages in the main measures. They are getting close to 3.5%. And I think also revenues will grow more slowly in 2019, simply because the economy will slow down. So when you have an increase in labor cost and a slowdown in revenue, that will put a significant pressure on profits. And companies in many cases will choose to shift some of the cost to the consumer. So I think uh, I, I think we now have a better chance of getting higher inflation than any time in this expansion. Gad Lebanon, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming in. Gad Lebanon, Chief Economist for North America for the Conference Board, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Well, yesterday, we had the Fed double down on its dovish stance, perhaps maybe seeing something in the economy that the rest of us don't see. Uh, to dig into that a little bit more, we welcome our guest, Bill Zox. Uh, Bill is the Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income at Diamond Hill Capital Management with approximately $19 billion under management uh, based in Columbus, Ohio. But he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Bill, welcome uh, to our studio. What did you take away from the Fed's report and from the comments from Chair- Chairman Powell yesterday? Well, I, I was surprised. I think the Fed was clearly too tight in December. The Fed needs to pay attention to market signals. But in this case, now the Fed is paying too much attention to market signals. I think the, the Fed has overcorrected and gone too far in the other direction, given the market even more than what it really wants or needs at this stage. Well, what's the consequence? I mean, what's the, what's the detrimental consequence? Well, I think it's, it's not a good situation when you've basically priced volatility out of 
all assets or largely priced volatility out. I think it's better when assets are, are priced for some volatility. So basically the fear here is that if the Fed holds rates too long, it can create, I don't want to say bubbles, but certainly excesses in different areas and different markets. And people point to stocks or high yield bonds. But the interesting thing is, is that following the Fed meeting, you didn't really see that gut reaction. You actually saw the knee jerk was risk off and you saw credit spreads widen actually. So how do you sort of Square these sort of uh, these 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 developments. Well, we've seen such a tremendous move back in risk assets since late last year, and I think if you look at the treasury market, should high yield spreads are about 400 basis points right now. If you look at the treasury market, high yield spreads should probably be somewhat wider than that. There's a disconnect between the two markets. So where are you thinking of? Where do you see opportunity? Where do you see value? I know you principally play in the high yield market. Is that right? So where are you seeing some opportunity here? Principally in the high yield market, but uh, ironically, as high yield investors are moving up in quality, they're making double B corporate bonds very rich. And as investment grade investors are moving up in quality, they're actually making triple B bonds, certain triple B bonds attractive. So one theme is to sell double Bs that are priced like investment grade and buy triple Bs that are priced like high yield. That's really interesting. Going forward, I'm wondering, are we out of Goldilocks, where as the Fed remains dovish uh, and, and even stops its uh, balance sheet roll-off, that won't be as supportive for credit going forward because of how much it's already rallied? I, that's exactly right. I think Goldilocks was basically priced into the market. And now uh, for the data to confirm a Goldilocks scenario like that is very unlikely. So that means that bad news will be bad news when it comes to the economy. Uh, I think that's right. So, you know, one of the things I think a lot of people obviously were surprised. I think I'm, I'm sensing your sense of surprise about how dovish the Fed was yesterday. Do you think they are seeing something that maybe the market is not? And if so, what do you think that could be? Uh, I, I, I don't think that's the case, but the market is very concerned about that. Uh, you know, I think I just don't understand the Fed was not paying enough attention to market signals in December. Now they're paying too much attention. That's all I can say. I thought I thought it should be more of a give and take with the markets. When you talk about the high yield bond market, uh, there have been a number of idiosyncratic moves. It's sort of uh, moving from a macro driven market to a very micro driven market with specific companies either doing really well uh, their debt or really poorly. I'm just wondering specifically within sectors, companies, where do you see the opportunities right now? Yeah, you know, uh, I'll give you one example that's sort of interesting, and there are two Detroit companies. It's consistent with the theme that I just mentioned. It's Motor City, a single casino credit in Detroit, and Ford Motor. And we're buying Ford Motor, and we've sold Motor City. That's what I was talking about before, Motor City. Interesting. A double B, low double B credit priced inside of 200 basis points credit spread. Ford opened up the investment grade market this year with a three-year bond priced at 325 basis points over Treasury. So there's a disconnect for you. Are there some sectors in the high yield, just sectors within the high yield that you like right now? Um, or is everything a little rich from your perspective? I mean, it, it's you have to be careful. We're late cycle. Uh, you, you've got to be careful in the high yield market. But we always like financials more than our peers. And, and we definitely find things to do in financials. I'll give you another Detroit credit 
uh, Credit Acceptance, a subprime auto lender, which is a very well-managed company. You were bullish on Detroit. Uh, I do, we do <laughs> like Detroit, even though from Columbus, Ohio, well, I, I like Detroit credits. So, uh, Bill, you said late cycle. When do you expect the cycle to turn and defaults to really meaningfully pick up? Yeah, I mean, that, that <clears throat> that's hard to call. Uh, you know, I, I think that... Uh, the, the cycle, the Fed is doing what it can to extend the cycle, but things can shift very quickly. And, and markets will probably drive it like they did in the fourth quarter, where fundamentally not a lot was happening, but the massive increase in volatility in markets increased the probability of recession quite dramatically. Thank you so much for being with us. Bill Zox, he is the Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income at Diamond Hill Capital Management, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Well, Levi Strauss, they priced their IPO last night at $17 per share. Uh, that was above the IPO range of 14 to 16. And looking on my Bloomberg terminal right now, the stock has not opened for trading yet today, but it is indicating even higher at 20 and a half to 21 and a half is the range. So clearly uh, a lot of investor uh, appetite for this name. Uh, to help us kind of break down the deal and take a look at the company in the space is Hen Grazutis. Hen is the apparel and footwell, uh, footwear analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers uh, studio. Hen, thanks so much for coming in. So what does the market really like about this name? I mean, again, it seems like a lot of demand above where investors or, or the investment bankers uh, initially uh, put the IPO range on. Right. So obviously a big name with a, with a long legacy, big history in the apparel space um, that we, we don't see too many IPOs in, in the space in the last years. You know, we had more companies bankrupt or going private. So that's that's a uh, that's unusual. What, what I think people like about it is a very uh, relatively low valuation they put on the deal in the first place. Um, on an EV2 EBITDA basis, it was about eight and a half, um, where the industry average is around 11. So I think that's kind of the movement that we've seen this morning. Why are they doing an IPO? Or why have they just done one, I guess? And we're waiting to see how it actually uh, trades. But why now? Right. So Levi Strauss is a company, you know, family-owned company, the house family, um, you know, owned it for ages. And I, I think, you know, to have some liquidity in their stake they have in the company, they're, they're putting out 10% of the company. So what is, all right, so what's the investment case here? Is this, is this like any kind of growth in this business? Um, what are investors buying here? Right. So first of all, the core business is the bottoms, right? So the jeans, uh, it's about 75% of the of the revenue. It's a, it's a big category worldwide. It's about $100 billion. And the nice thing about this specific company, um, a lot like Nike, what we see in Athletic, in every region that they operate, they hold the number one position. So in the U.S., it's almost 13% of market share, just one company. Uh, in, in any other region, they're number one. Europe, they're only number two. So I think people are looking at it saying, you know, it's a, it's a best in breed in that specific category. That's to start. Um, I think after they're going public, they do have opportunities to venture out of the core business to, to go into, um, there's a story today about going into tops, a sweatshirt, t-shirts, etc., um, accessories, footwear. Those are all under categories that they can use the brand name to venture into. 
this is such an interesting IPO at a time when retail is called under question uh, in an Amazon era when branding doesn't necessarily mean quite as much uh, for them to sort of bring back the nostalgia of the 1980s yeah. and say anything or, you know, right. the, the blue jeans and the jean jacket and the jean shirts, etc. Uh, it is sort of interesting. I actually want to go there. Is, does branding matter? in an era of Amazon, uh, when people just are really looking for the item and not necessarily the name. Well, absolutely. I think branding matters. And I think, you know, that's something that Paul talked about yesterday in terms of Netflix, content is a king, right? So in our, our business, um, so retail, the brands are the content. So f for them, it doesn't necessarily, you know, matters if you sell it through the mid-tier department stores at JCPenney or Macy's, or you sell it on your own website or you sell it on Amazon. Um, it, it really, you can shift between channels and actually moving away from mid-tier department stores and moving to your own channel, selling it on your website, uh, you sell it for a higher price point, you sell it for higher margin, um, you do have to pay fulfillment, shipping, etc. cetera, um, but it does give you a lot of growth opportunities you didn't have before. So Levi Strauss obviously is an iconic name here in the United States, cowboys and all that kind of stuff. How has that brand traveled outside of the U.S.? What percentage of the sales are outside of the U.S.? And is that an area they think they can grow? Right. So it's it's about 40% outside the U.S. Um, it's definitely an area they, that can grow. They, they're really penetrated um, in a lot of different markets globally. Um, or Asia, um, you know, Ch China, it's only 2% of their total sales. So obviously China is a much larger market than that. And traditionally what we've seen with China with American brands is they come in, they get the, the brand perception in the market can be a lot more premium than what it's getting here in the U.S. Um, so they might have, uh, you know, more price power in, in markets like Asia. So there's definitely opportunities there. Can we just touch quickly on Nike? Uh, because it is March Madness. Right. So is, is Nike really benefiting here or are we going to uh, have a potential problem because of the little snafu in the sneaker situation? Right, earlier. let's hope that no shoes are going to be blown up. Right. Yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, it's not on the first day and definitely not to Duke. Um, you know, Nike does well every year in the NCAA in terms of the number of teams that they're sponsoring. And in the end of the day, it comes down to how much exposure they're getting. And we put out a number out there that we calculated that based on um, the, the number of, of, of the, the, how much time you, the logos are visible on the live broadcast. For the entire NCAA, it's probably equivalent to about $250 million in advertising dollars. Yeah, that's it's a big number. And my jaw just dropped because <laughs> the thing that, that you can calculate sort of the value of every second on a court. That's right. And that's why they're paying the big bucks to right? the schools. They right? are. And they're putting, you know, they're putting a lot of money and be behind those those teams. Um, Nike's leading the, you know, over 50 percent of the teams. But Under Armour has 25 percent of the teams. That's yeah. the record number for them. Um, I think they wish that the rest of the business would do as, as good as, as the, the number of teams they, they're sponsoring. Yeah, Ren Gertrudez, thank you so much for being with us. Ren Gertrudez is, is the apparel and footwear analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.